2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Danny, hello. big news. I want to kick things off with some uh, incredibly exciting news. Okay. You a fan of Jason Momoa? Yeah, you know, sure. What would you say is his best feature? His dumbness. <laughs> <laughs> his, his dumb energy. His dumb energy is very important to him.
3: And also, he's very hairy, very astute man. He is like, hairy. I love his beard.
1: He's probably one of the hairiest leading men in Hollywood, possibly the hairiest.
3: Yeah, now that Robin Williams is dead. <laughs> yeah,
1: his crown has been taken by uh, Aquaman, the king of Atlantis. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's He's got he's kings of two things. Yeah. Atlantis and being hairy. Absolutely. But he's not as hairy now as he used to be, as in order to raise awareness of recycling, he's shaved his beard in a YouTube video. Uh, This is as reported by Unilad. Uh, One of Jason Momoa's most recognisable traits is his glorious face, complete with luscious locks and relatively lengthy facial hair. But much to fans' dismay, the actor has now got rid of his beard. Momoa underwent the transformation in a YouTube video in which he made viewers watch as he slowly got rid of the beard and revealed his bold chin. <laughs> Which I guess is what's normally underneath the beard. And uh, he was doing this in order to take the opportunity to talk about recycling. He's In the video, he explained as follows. I just want to do
2: this to bring awareness that plastics are killing our planet. And I think I have a solution. I don't want to bitch about it. There's only one thing it can really help our planet and save our planet as long as we recycle. That's aluminum.
1: So he's doing this to promote the use of aluminium. Right. Cut plastic out, replace it with aluminium. Is this, as a result Tupperware, of being Aquaman, tin, tins.
3: he's done some research into, like, you know, the oceans are full of plastic, plastic beaches, destroying the habitat.
1: It's all the time he spent at the bottom of the ocean while shooting Aquaman. Yeah. He's noticed that, <laughs> that the it's fish are of dying off. There's <laughs> a lot of plastic. Yeah, he was constantly having to pull his own neck out of, like, uh, the plastic things that cans come in.
3: What? Say, yeah. Would you say he's like iconically bearded? I mean, if like the guy, what's his name? Christopher Hivju, the guy, with the torment from Game of Thrones. Oh, that guy, if he yeah. He shaved his beard, it'd be like, oh, oh shit. Oh, my God. Because he'd look very, very different. He's My like, tone,
1: the whole way that I'm talking about this would be dramatically different if it was that guy. Yeah. I, it would be, this would be, a, I wouldn't be expecting anyone to find it funny. I'd just be like, have you heard about the uh, Torment's beard? It's just terrible.
3: But I wouldn't say Jason Momoa is like, oh, Momoa with his iconic beard. Never seen without it. Never been in a movie without that beard. Well. I'm sure he shaved that beard many times. I'm tonight, sure
1: for so, the, you know. for the Momoa, the Momoan fans, the little Momo monsters or whatever they call themselves. Yeah. It's very, they have a very close personal relationship with the beard. You probably don't get it because you're not, you're not don't in that, you're not on that scene. Yeah. Do you think he's at the level where you can tweet about him and you get like 30 different fan accounts either liking you or, or hating on you? I hope so. Like when you tweeted about Robert Pattinson and you, you know, we yeah. got followed or whatever by um, some RPATs pats fan accounts.
3: Yeah, a lot of r fan accounts. I once tweeted about Andrew Garfield wearing this really weird uh, orange polo shirt. And a couple of <laughs> Garfield fan accounts like, mm. took me to task about it. Oh, really? So they took me to task, they're like, you know he gets styled for those things. That's their <laughs> response. <laughs> I was like, all right, Jesus. How <laughs> Derek like Lord Andrew Garfield.
1: Yeah, well, we, we're going to be be treading on um, thin ice if we tweet about Momoa.
3: Okay. What if they search, you know, because I put the hashtags in the episode descriptions. I'll leave out Jason Momoa out of the hashtag so that we don't Oh, hear.
1: do not put him in the yeah, hashtag. Yeah, in case
3: they s- they're searching the iTunes and stuff, Yeah, they'll find this. They'll
1: listen to me talking about it as though I think it's ridiculous, and then they're going to f- fucking go apeshit, won't they? <laughs> um. Anyway, have you been watching anything lately, Danny?
3: I've been watching, well, it's the uh, Kubrick season of the BFI, but I've watched a few things there, but they haven't really compared to the bloody... <laughs> <laughs> the cinematic highlight of my year, which is watching Home Alabama for yeah. the first time all the way through. I've, seen I've never seen it before.
1: Yeah, The Reese With The film.
3: She's a country girl. She's moved to the city and she's turned her back and become a bit of a snob, right? Uh, but she has to go back to get a divorce from her childhood sweetheart because she wants to marry Patrick Dempsey, who's the son of the mayor. A lot going on in this movie. <laughs> I just think it's very dated in a couple of ways. There's like a sort of scene where she like outs a gay guy. Hmm. That's not good. That doesn't sound good. It's kind of poorly handled i think yeah and also there's a lot of confederate flags in the movie like her dad is into a civil war reenactment and there's just like scenes where they're having like sort of domestic disputes and there's just, like a confederate flag hanging in the background it's like oh reese mm. Witherspoon's his parents are just racist like <laughs> and when she's like getting back in touch with her roots is it like the clan you know like
1: that's just southern culture yeah exactly
3: yeah <laughs> that's it's, weird like, yeah it's a husband, the Grand Wizard. I mean, there's a lot of subtext here. But for the most part, quite, you know, watchable. Basically carried by the charm of Reese Witherspoon. She's very good in those sorts of roles. I can see why she made about 20 identical movies in the noughties. Fair play. Um, Yeah, but maybe secretly a pro, pro-Confederate pro movie.
1: Do you think it, sh- it could use a bit of a um, George Lucas-style uh, reissue? Yeah. Where they've CGI'd out all the Confederate flags. Yeah. And instead they're just like... I don't know, Johnny Cash posters or something. <laughs> what
3: are the Southern people like? <laughs> Some Jack Daniel labels. Just, <laughs>
1: just pictures of grits. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> but yeah, five stars. Masterpiece. That Tons- oh, sounds lovely. Um, sorry, I was thinking so much about Swim Alabama there. I've actually forgotten why I'm here. Well, what am I doing here? What's, uh, what's going on?
1: Well, you're on Film Chat, Danny. It's a podcast um, all about a saloon sex worker called Danny Moran who rescues her friend Sam from an abusive customer by killing him. And then she is sentenced to hang. However, Sam and their two friends, Eileen and Lily, rescue Danny, and the four make a run for Texas, pursued by two Pinkerton detectives, Graves and O'Brady. When Danny withdraws her savings from a Texas bank, the women believe they can now start a new life in Oregon. But Danny's old partner, Kid Jarrett, takes her money when his gang robs the bank, and so the four so-called honky-tonk harlots set out to recover the money, with the Pinkertons hot on their trail. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 1994 much-beloved, much-recalled, much-discussed Western Bad Girls. Instead, it's just a podcast in which you talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, a bad girl, <laughs> Danny Moran.
3: Hello. On this episode of Film Chat, I will be reviewing the Western the Sister Brothers. It's a Western based on a book written by a Canadian, shot in Spain by a Frenchman. If this doesn't stop Brexit, I don't know what will! Uh, Meanwhile, Sam, you'll be reviewing Wild Rose, which is, disappointingly, not an adaptation of that Nick Cave song where he kills Kylie Minogue, but the feel-good story of a Glaswegian country singer attempting to make it big. Plus, my chills are multiplying, and I'm losing control, just thinking about the news that they're going to make a prequel to Greece, so we should probably talk about it. And we will, of course, be discussing the latest Star Wars trailer, frame by frame, with a solid 20 minutes spent on that bit where Kylo Ren body slammed somebody with a lightsaber. Sick. Even though the lightsaber is, she'll just cut right through him. How's it carrying any weight? It doesn't make sense. Time for a deep dive on that one. And hopefully that will give me enough time to read out the original shooting script of Star Wars Episode 9, which I've obtained, which was provisionally entitled Episode 9 The Rotting Corpse of Rose Tycho. Open brackets, fuck you, Ryan Johnson. You have no respect for my mystery box. Close brackets. (laughs) It's a desirely more brutal response to the changes Ryan Johnson's implemented uh, in the previous film. But the finished film will retain the same story beats, namely Snoke getting some metal spider legs. Not dead. Uh, Luke materializing and just saying everything he said in the previous film was just like a joke. (laughs) (laughs) And um, of course, the scene where Laura Dern's Admiral Holdo is resurrected, so Poe can shoot her in the face. And then take a dump on her while Finn just like looks on and claps and cheers. Uh, it's dark, it's dark, but it's what the fans want, you know. Great. And if you don't appeal to the worst people in the world, who are you appealing to?
1: I'm I'm assuming that in the shooting script, about after about halfway through, there's no women in the movie. No. The women disappear from the film quite quickly, right? Well, I'm
3: not disappeared. They're, they're massacred. They're <laughs>
1: Gosh! Wow. Brutal. Well, it's for the fans. Yeah, the fans are gonna love it. <laughs> the fans are gonna love it. So for the, 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 uh, the audience score of Rotten Tomatoes is gonna be off. You know, off the chain.
3: You know, in a Revenge of the Sith, where you excuse Order sixty six. Yeah, there's a new <laughs> there's a new one. New. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but sixty six refers to this all the women. Right. Yeah. That's sixty five. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 movies, good films, bad films,
2: fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars Trier films, old films, new films, some John Boo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, hours long we've got films up to your gills with films 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 films. Movies. are you feeling comfortable film chat has begun
1: our good friend and regular listener georgia got in touch with us um well with me didn't, didn't go through the official channels, yes. She went through the back channels, her, my personal communication with a with question film chat. This is actually from ages ago, but I forgot to mention it before. So this is, we should have been talking about this several episodes ago, but it's no, you know, better late than ever. And uh, she says, question film chat, if you deem it worthy, we do now. At the end of The Hobbit, the Battle of the Five Armies, Thorin says, if more people valued home over cause, the world would be a much brighter place. I feel that the exact opposite is probably true. What is the film with the wrongest moral? Now, before we get into it, we should mention that we did a little background check on this quote. Yeah. Right, and you looked it up on YouTube, and he doesn't actually say that.
3: Yeah, he says this. If more people
0: value it all above
3: gold, this world would be a merry place. But I don't know whether this is the extended cut or whether George is misremembering. What, Fran, even...
1: Fran Walsh like went and like saw it in the cinema and was like, oh, we fucked that one up. <laughs> and am going to need a rewrite.
3: Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The it's a good, it's a good question helps. anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, she's quite correct that if he had said it would be better if people valued home over course, that's a terrible moral. That is a terrible moral. But gold over over home. That's bad. That's bad. <laughs> that's, that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. Good. I would say the hierarchy would go cause, then home, then gold. Right. That's probably the the way to do it.
3: What if you need gold to get a home? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fair enough, then. Put gold up. You know, it's, it's all relative, isn't it's it? It's all relative. It's all subject to change. So, um, this is an interesting question, I think. There's a broad take on this, which is just, like, movies that have bad values, you know, mm-hmm. and express them through the film, which is one way to look at it. You could also look at it as being about films which are very moral in the, in their manner. You know, they're, they're yeah. teaching you a lesson. They're sort of, like, fables, which would narrow things narrow things down a little bit. Um, did you have any, any thoughts on this? The
3: ones that sprang to mind were, like, Brad Bird movies. Now that it's sort of, like, very obvious that he's a big Ayn Rand guy, like, The Incredibles is all about... The villain is a guy who, like, invents uh, superpowers and wants people to, like, be able to fly and stuff. And, uh, you know... He wants to to give
1: everyone superpowers.
2: And when I'm old and I've had my fun, I'll sell my inventions so that everyone can be superheroes. Everyone can be super. And when everyone's super...
1: (laughs) No
3: one will be. The heroes are the super elites and all the fucking pleb losers. Everyone else should be fucking grateful that these gods allow them to live on the planet, which is obviously (laughs) meant for them or so whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's quite a mean-spirited kind of worldview.
1: Yeah, and you can also definitely see that attitude in Tomorrowland. I mean, I think the conversation over whether Brad Bird is an objectivist or not is a bit secondary to the fact that he's clearly an elitist. Yeah. I mean, that's the main main thing. Tomorrowland is this very, very strange film about a kind of paradise which basically consists solely of, like, creatives and engineers and scientists and stuff where all the normal people have been sloughed off and left to die. (laughs) And the conclusion of the film is all these like robotic children who were sent off into the earth to kidnap all the like the cool YouTube uh, influencers <laughs> and, uh, and scientists and whatever. So they can all go and build jetpacks together and live in a nice world while everyone else is just fucked. You know, yeah. like th- doesn't care about everyone else. Um, so that's pretty bad. I would say a very obvious example of a film with bad morals would be the birth of a nation.
3: That's bad, isn't it? That's
1: bad because it's the, the Ku Klux Klan of the heroes and black people are betrayed as kind of bestial savages. And uh, there's also that Disney film Song of the South, which celebrates sort of slavery plantations. Yeah. It's set after the the Civil War, but it's like, you know, in a, in a similar way to Gone with the Wind um, has got a very rose-tinted view of the antebellum South. Um, I was sort of thinking like films that tend to have strong morals are like kids films. And the other thing that sprang to mind was like rom-coms. I feel like romance plots have often got a moral dimension to them. Yeah. There's something about the... Search for the right person that is always portrayed in a way that shows you like people doing things wrong and then people doing things right, and all those a lot of those choices are ethical. So, I think there's often a moral dimension to rom coms, but a lot of like classic Hollywood rom coms have quite bad morals. Um, so you can find a lot of bad stuff in there, yeah, um, because they celebrate like sexist stereotypes, um, and uh, also like materialism a lot of yeah, the time,
3: absolutely, even like stuff like His Girl Friday and Philadelphia Story, which is sort of celebrate for their fast talking quick dames they always by the end are like crying and just you know oh thank yeah. god you've come and rescued me Cary grant or yeah yeah his his girl equipment. friday is
1: a funny one because it's got like it's such a sort of whip smart written film and uh rosalind russell isn't it yeah um as uh the main woman in it is uh you know this brilliant very smart woman who spends most of the movie outwitting Cary grant and then at the end she just melts back into his arms and then it's a bit like like audiences will hate it if the woman can't win you you can do whatever you want for most of the film but the woman can't win at the end the man has to win at the end uh two films that i um often think of he's like bad what i view is their bad ethics are are overlooked uh uh, whiplash and the devil wears prada which i think are quite parallel films they're both films that kind of worship authority and it being exercised in quite a sadistic way and i view them as pro-bullying movies where, yeah. like, the authority figures of J.K. J., J. Simmons, the jazz man, and um, uh, Meryl Streep, uh, the, fashion, fashion. the fashion woman, the woman. <laughs> <laughs> as I think of them, uh, they're both kind of semi-villains in the film, but they're also, like, celebrated as, you know, pioneers and geniuses who, uh, uh, who are ultimately their, like, harsh t- sort of drill sergeant-style teachings, uh, character building. Yeah. And they're, they're the makings of uh, the protagonists of those movies. Um, in a way that I think is quite fucked up.
2: Truth is, I don't think people understood what it was I was doing at Schaefer. I wasn't there to conduct. Any fucking moron can wave his arms and keep people in tempo. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity.
1: Speaking of Damien Chazelle movies, La La Land is also a movie we've complained about before. We also feel like that has quite bad ethics in that it's like a celebration of um, it's it's a very sort of hyper capitalist film, I feel. And it's a film which is strips um, artistic achievement purely down to uh, commercial achievement and which like the actual art contained in the film is totally meaningless. And uh, the, the worth of it is ultimately determined by the market. Basically, success is just whether you've made money out of it and people have come to see it. Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty bad.
3: So does he think First Man is a terrible film now because it didn't make money, even though he made it? He probably thinks so. he's, like, he's like really proud of it. <laughs> he's and it, like, he's clearly a bad director. Like, I'm terrible. <laughs> it must be shit. Yeah, probably. Wow.
1: Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, topic. Anyway, so to if our listeners have any thoughts on this, I'd be, I'd be delighted to hear them. Yes. Remember to write in.
3: Yes, please. Yes, please do that.
2: Superhero films announced, casting rumours
1: leaking out, M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tips. Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's
2: made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print.
3: So studios are always looking through their back catalogue, what intellectual property do they own, how can they make more money of it, and someone at Paramount was like, wait a second, we own Greece. So they're like, wait a second, The Greatest Showman is still making hand of a fist money. We need another crowd-pleasing blockbuster musical. They put the two together, and now a Grease prequel is happening. It's going to be called Summer Lovin', probably named off that song, which you'll know is like the Sandy and Danny sort of talking about their holidays, and they were very different takes on what happened. One's very masculine, (laughs) one's very feminine, very funny, very amusing song. Let's hear a bit of it. (laughs)
2: Had me a blast. Summer loving happened so fast. I met a girl crazy for me. Met a boy, cutest for me. Summer days drifting away to another summer night.
3: So. They've obviously gone to the, ma- the only man who can do this, which is the guy who wrote Big Fish, John August.
1: <coughs> and he wrote Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Charlie's,
3: Charlie's, the two best movies of the last... uh the last 50 the last years. last 200 years <laughs> of human existence, I would say. A lot of that doesn't cover the... You know, a lot of that's before cinema existed, but I think he was still just doing good work. Uh, he was, yeah. And that's basically all we know about it. It's just like, there's going to be a prequel. That's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. That's all we
1: need to know to celebrate this.
3: So they've basically taken one song from Greece and going to build an entire film out of it. Mm. So presumably this is when they met and had a summer romance and they thought that was the end of it. But then, you know, they ended up at the same school. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's filling in
1: uh, the background to Greece. You come out of that movie with a lot of questions about (laughs) what really
3: happened in the past. (laughs) I always took it that Sandy was telling the truth and... Danny was exaggerating to, like, impress his bro friends. Mm. But would you reckon that somewhere in the middle is the real truth? <laughs> I think <laughs> it's going to be like Rashomon, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Maybe there'll be loads of other perspectives. <laughs> on.
3: they kill someone on that beach. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, it's it be would s- be great if, like... It should some... have been called I Know What You Did Last Summer loving.
3: <laughs> it would be amazing if like there's something incredibly like dramatic and like horrendous happened that summer which like you can't watch Grease again the same way knowing what they did
1: shouldn't it be based on something new rather than something where it's already been sketched out by the lyrics of a song you know i don't think a prequel is the kind of best cash-in route to go down i feel like it causes you a lot of problems wouldn't a safer route to have been Done, done like another sequel but it's like they're kids and they basically have the same story again. Yeah. Something like that. I guess so. That would be the the obvious way also, to Also
3: the it. arcs is like you know Sandy goes from like goody two shows to sort of leather clad baby in the movie but is she yeah. like even more of a prude in the prequel like she's like Amish and then she like, like Right and then <laughs> by, then the, then end she's by like the end she's, she's using buttons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like Danny's like kind of like a bit of a douchebag at the start of Grease and kind of the same at the end, isn't he? He doesn't... Yeah, he doesn't no, sort of I think woo her.
1: the way it should be is that he's a goody two-shoes. And she's, she's the same as she is at the beginning of Grease. And yeah. then uh, he... Wait, yeah. So they they start the movie the same. Yeah. And then at the end of the film, they're different. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then at the end of the next film, they're the same again, but, yeah. but they've both transformed.
3: Yeah, a of <laughs> ebb and flow to their personalities. Yeah,
1: so she, you know, he is in persona B in in the beginning of the original Grease If you see what I mean. <laughs> gotcha. That's the that's the trajectory that all young 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 people follow. Yeah. You get you go from like nice uh, bright kind of Christian clothes to uh, satanic leather. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I think it's
1: this one's going to be really this, good.
3: This one's going to be really, really good.
1: <laughs> you know what I have some misgivings about, though? What? The new Star Wars film. Really? Yeah, so their trailer for the new Star Wars movie has dropped, announcing the, the title of it. There was a big Star Wars con thing yeah. recently that people were getting very excited about. And... Before the trailer was dropped, there were some gags going around about how J.J. Abrams was going to go back on Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, you know, after its fan backlash. And a lot of people didn't like the way that Luke Skywalker was portrayed and various things that happened in the plot in that film. And uh, that film was clearly a bit of a critique of the franchise and also the fans' relationship to the franchise. And so people took it personally. And the fact that they rehired the director of The Force Awakens, whose whatever loose sketches he'd had for the trilogy were obviously thrown entirely out when (laughs) Ryan Johnson took over. So it seems like he would be tempted to just reverse what Ryan Johnson did and try to put it back on track. But that seemed like that would just be too clumsy. Yeah. You think that that would just not make for a satisfying story. Like if you watch the whole trilogy... You know and it seems like the movies are all arguing with with each other and trying to tell you that the last one was rubbish <laughs> it's not going to make for a very a very satisfying watch however the teaser trailer at least as as sort of portrayed that looks like that's exactly the route he's taken
0: we'll always be with you.
1: <laughs> so the i mean you did a tweet about this and i thought for you were joking about there being a shot where Kylo ren repairs his helmet <laughs> which, he, which he broke in uh, the previous movie but no that 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 does yeah. happen and also luke's got, uh, lightsaber got broken in the last jedi and that's been repaired as well so
3: yeah, and also just the title, The Rise of...
1: Um, the Rise of Skywalker. Skywalker.
3: He's, yeah. yeah. It's like... It's like it the other be... film was
1: kind of about how dynasties, you know, should be abandoned. And, yeah. like, you should just take on... Like, people should be able to forge their own destiny. And there was that shot at the end of, like, a kid yeah. holding a broomstick like a lightsaber. Like, anyone can do this. And I was like, no, Skywalker.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it is quite amusing. The it's like... You know, if J.J. Abrams wanted him to, like, enact some plan, he should have had a better plan. Absolutely, and I feel like yeah. Ryan Johnson was presented with a lot of, like, problems which he provided very elegant solutions to. Was he supposed to, like, uh, you know, turn up at the beginning of Lost Jedi? He's like, Luke, we need you. He's like, oh, I've been building this really big gun for ten years. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that' be, like, a psychological reason why he'd abandoned himself. And if J.J. Abrams didn't figure it out himself... Can't just go around and be Absolutely. like, Brian, you fucked up my plan." It's like, what plan?
1: Well, the Force Awakens was kind of constructed in the edit, right? There was all there was all of this stuff that they junked at the last minute. Yeah, they had all these scenes that they shot and didn't use. It's clear when you watch the film that this is a massively confused enterprise, where there's like all of this lore that they must have written and had thoughts about, but is not is not actually explicit, made explicit in the film. So it's actually a deeply confusing movie where you have no real sense of what the status quo in the galaxy is or anything. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he obviously didn't have a plan, and the movie doesn't present you with one. And Ryan Johnson actually did quite a heroic effort to leave it in this open-ended place, where someone could take it on and do something really interesting. And there's something just so irritating about the way that the trailer for this film feels like a trailer for The Force Awakens. Like it looks, it looks like The Force Awakens. Like they're all wearing the same clothes and it just yeah, looks the same.
3: And, uh Just, like, the Emperor's back and stuff, and it's like, he got rid of all your crap ideas, you know? Don't just, like, go back into the cupboard and try and pull something out. It's like, the Emperor's dead, Snoke is dead. There's this,
1: like, weird kind of recursive nostalgia effect here where, like, The Force Awakens was, you know, attempting to evoke the original Star Wars, and now this movie is just trying to evoke The Force Awakens, and it's like, grow some balls. Tell a fucking new story, you know? Just have the courage to present something that we haven't seen before Ugh. oh god check my reddit posts for more <laughs> for more of
3: this exasperation also where is Rose Tycho? where's Rose Tycho? I felt like the fact that I don't know far be it for me to question Disney's strategy or whatever but given that like the amount of uh, backlash she received just leave twitter and stuff Felt like not putting her in the trailer is almost tantamount to so conceding to the nerds. They should have like, yeah. they should have put at least one shot in to say like she's in the fucking movie. Deal with it. Movie should be races. called The
1: Rise of Tycho.
3: Yeah, more of her. She was a great character. Yeah, she was brilliant. Yeah. Also, I don't care about bit. I don't care about these old people. They're all dead now, aren't they? Just like, just lose the shackles of the past. Like, let Brian, it die. Brian Johnson was like, <laughs> just like hugging efforts to fucking like push this <laughs> franchise somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I feel that, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. I think just the Last Jedi statue, statue, the statue I've erected to the Last <laughs> Jedi, I love it so much. We'll just kind of rise and rise because it's, uh, I feel like, yeah, it did uh, did something genuinely new. And it kind of tapped into a sort of generational uh, gap, I think, it's just widening. Like, it's kind of plugged into the culture a little bit. It's like, yeah, it kill the past. Fuck everyone, all of us. They're terrible people. Yeah, They destroyed the planet the economy is crumbling the housing market
1: is fucked I think that I think that is that is like one way to read to read that movie actually is like you know this is a new world and we've got to build something better out of it
3: absolutely and Lando Carrizin is not going to help us exactly
1: junk Lando he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to do it yeah yeah sad very odd can't wait
3: and now for Danny to review a film he recently
1: saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it we poor? Out of Danny for the judgment, we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off.
3: So, the sister brothers. This is the English language debut of Jacques Audiard. I'm, sh- I'm not sure you pronounce his name that way. That's it's probably close French enough. French is where you can pronounce it. Previously directed Deep and Rust and Bone and A Prophet, acclaimed filmmaker. Now speaking in English. What's going on? So it's set in the American West in 1851 and the sister brothers of the title, Eli and Charlie Sister, played by John C. Reilly and Wacking Phoenix, respectively, are gunfighters that are hired by a wealthy businessman known as the Commodore, played by Rugger Hauer in a very small cameo. And he tasked them with killing a man named Herman Warm, uh, played by Reza who he claims has stolen from him. The Commodore has sent ahead of them a private detective called John Morris, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who he's tasked with locating Herman and keeping him in one place long enough for the brothers to get there and off him. Here is a clip of Eli being very annoyed at a hungover Charlie due to the fact that Charlie punched him the previous night.
2: What's wrong with you? You remember what happened last night? Yes. And? You remember that you hit me?
3: I hit you? I hit you? Stop pretending and
0: spare me the out of remember routine. You hit me in public, Charlie. So as sure as you're looking at me right now, I'm leaving. No, wait, 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 wait.
3: All right,
2: what do you want? This is about slapping each other in public. After so I slap you, you slap me back, raven. So go ahead. Hit me. Hit me. <laughs>
3: Oh, what is your goddamn problem? So I thoroughly, the, I thoroughly liked this movie. Liked it in a thorough thorough manner. It's a, it's a very entertaining and a very sort of pleasingly weird film. And it sort of plays with the tropes of a Western in a way, which is very fun. The fact that they're called the Sister Brothers kind of clues you into the tone of the uh, movie. And that, that itself is like a sort of dumb joke. Yeah. Um... And there's a lot of fun to be had with these kind of two ruthless assassins that are basically sort of bickering children, and John C. Riley and Wacking Phoenix are a fun pairing. It occurred to me afterwards that it was the stars of Walk the Line and Walk Hard as brothers. I don't know if that's some some meta casting, like. Hmm. Um, and it, uh, it's entertaining seeing Wacking Phoenix or sort of cut loose. He's not playing a tortured psychological guy; He's a sort of drunk party dude. Whereas uh, John C. Riley, who's been doing more and more comedy recently, is kind of grounding everything. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed seeing John C. Riley do a sort of straightforwardly dramatic role uh, because he's just a brilliant actor. And I remember Dan mentioning this to me, that, like, he can sort of be in any movie, any genre, any tone. He's kind of uh, chameleon-like, despite being incredibly distinctive. Yeah. You can put him in any film. Poor Thomas Anderson movie. We need to talk about Kevin. Step Brothers. He just works in everything. And it was cool to see him do a very sort of melancholic performance. He kind of is key to the whole movie working, in a way. And to counterbalance them there's this really great odd pairing of Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed, both giving sort of performances with capital P's. They're both doing sort of accents. They've both got some mannerisms. And I was like thoroughly digging their acting they were doing.
1: That's the only kind of performance that Gyllenhaal gives these days.
3: Exactly. And as a side note, I like the fact that they cast Riz Ahmed as an American guy, even though he's clearly from South Asian uh, descent, just uh, didn't mention it. Yeah. It's like the last time I've seen Riz Ahmed on the screen recently, is he's been playing Tick Billionaires, which is cool that sort of, he's in a Western. I like that. Um, Another thing I liked about it is that it's very Linus Feet. The sort of road movie structure means that they switch location and scenarios very uh, deftly. And it's kind of weaved together these compelling relationships. And it's sort of about, well, it's about a lot of things, but it's kind of about like the world's changing and they have to change with it. And uh, it's about these men sort of like sick of their old lives. But it's got this pervading air of optimism to it, which is quite rare for a Western. It's not like bloody and nihilistic. It's just like, hey, the world's probably getting better, generally. I kind of like that. And it's maybe best described as a sort of hangout movie. You just kind of like all the characters and they're fun to hang out with, but at the same time, the movie never drags. It's kind of got everything, this movie. And I think its success is down to the direction. He won Best Director at the Venice Film Festival, the Silver Lion. They don't just give it to any old slouches. (laughs) And it feels very deserved because it's a very kind of deft piece of filmmaking. It's funny without being flippant. It's kind of soulful about being pretentious or mawkish. And uh, I, feel, I feel like I say this a lot, and it's sort of anti-point, but it could have gone wrong either way. It's a very good balancing act. You feel like in lesser hands it wouldn't quite work, but it does. And it's not really treading new ground in terms of content, but the way it's packaged is quite new. It just kind of constantly surprises you. So I would thoroughly recommend.
1: Sounds good.
3: Go watch it. Looks like Sam's
1: got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey, Sam, here's a few
2: tips for you that I hope are going to help you out. You got to come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into
1: the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking or shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Wild Rose. This is from a Western to a film about country and Western music. What, what a nice segue I just did. Uh, this is a um, uh, British independent film directed by uh, Tom Harper, who uh, directed the TV miniseries War and Peace and also directed on Peaky
3: Blinders and stuff. You ever yeah. see that movie, The Woman in Black, Angel of Death? No, but I went for a job working for his production company. I didn't get it. So I personally have a vendetta against this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm Tom glad Harper's that you're not reviewing Underlings don't know talent when they see
1: it. <laughs> what was his production company?
3: Called like pop, no, popcorn storm entertainment.
1: Ugh, Ugh. fucking ridiculous. I know. I'm glad right? you didn't get a job. that would be embarrassing if you had to if you say that you work at a place with a name like that.
2: Oh,
1: right. So anyway, this is uh, stars uh, Jesse Buckley and Judy Walters and Sophia Cunéda, uh, and Jesse Buckley plays um, Rosalind Harlan. She's a Glaswegian working class woman. She gets out of prison at the beginning of the film and returns uh, home. And has a dream of going to Nashville and becoming a country singer there. She's like a gifted singer. She loves country music. She um, sang a lot with this local band. Um, and all she wants to do is save up uh, money and go to Nashville so she can realize her dream. Um, but it's difficult to do because she has responsibilities at home and uh, you know, not a lot of money. So that's the setup. Sure. Here's a clip. We well, are never to crawl
0: and I never to tow. No man is master of me I ain't that kind I just put on my traveling shoes if you want to win you just can't lose the time or stay behind well I was born to run to get ahead
1: I like this film a lot. thought it was very good. It's got a very familiar kind of uh, premise. You know immediately what the stakes are. You know, one person who's got their artistic dream and wants to fulfill it, especially someone from like working class roots sort of evokes something like Billy Elliott um, or things like that. I think I'm kind of uh, partial to these types of movies anyway. You know, someone who's in in circumstances but wants to uh, express themselves uh, creatively and has a dream. I think the the main thing that really holds it together is the uh, success of the performances. Jessie Buckley is really really brilliant in it. I didn't really know who she was, but uh she was in that movie Beast. Uh, and then previously was in uh she was the runner up in um I'd do anything. The uh, talent show where Angelo Webber was looking for his next Nancy. <laughs>
3: that is a hilariously titled show. What what did he, what did he make them do? I'd do anything, Angelo. I think most these sing but
1: you know, I didn't watch it so it could have been some really fucked up stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Um. So, so she's established that. <laughs> but
3: you said you'd do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Any
1: <laughs> anything. <laughs> anything.
3: Sorry, a, big, a bigger part. Yeah.
1: So, so she's been established as a, as a singer, and she does have a really, really good voice. And the movie makes really good use of it. And she's a very good actress as well. She seems to, you know, have everything required to play this role. She do does a really good job. Star is
3: born. Sam in this movie.
1: I would say. I would say a star is born wow. in the film. Yeah. And uh, Judy Walters, who plays her grandmother in it. Is playing a very kind of Judy Walters-esque role, and it's probably the most uh, sort of, like, clichéd part, the most sort of cookie-cutter thing, which I think is maybe not helped by the casting of Judy Walters because it just feels like, you know, this kind of slightly frail-seeming but actually firm but benevolent woman has just stumbled in from a million other movies that you've sure, seen her in sure. before. Uh, but, she, but she's a very good actress, so she does a good job. It's got good kids in it. I feel like I want to front-load that point. I like uh, good child acting. That's also something that can really hold a movie back when, like, Every time a kid appears on screen, it breaks your suspension of disbelief because they're too shit. And these kids are excellent. They're two, a young boy and a young girl who are both really, really good in it. And basically, I would say it follows a relatively familiar structure, but um, it's uh, it's it's very well made and it does enough new things with its uh, devices um, to succeed. So there's a few sort of ways in which it approached this material that I appreciated. Uh, I like the fact that it wasn't only about the material obstacles that she was facing, the fact that she doesn't have uh, any money and she's also got a lot of commitments. But uh, it's also, it's got an interesting take on uh, lacking self-belief in a way, because she doesn't have any doubts about her own ability as a singer or the fact that she could actually do country singing or like or if she was presented with the opportunity to do so, she would succeed at it. But the thing that she doesn't, um, that she does lack is like, a sense of possibility given her background like the world that she lives in and for her becoming a successful country singer is something that has to take place in a totally different context you know she has to travel to what i what i understand to be the la of country music you know right uh in order to uh, sort of make it out there and it's not something that she can do where she's from because country music isn't a thing in glasgow and you know in people who are in that world don't succeed in that way and uh, she encounters she gets a job in the movie as a uh, a maid what they call a daily woman that must be some scottish a terminology woman. yeah <laughs> um hey. working for sophie okonedo who's a very wealthy um, woman and uh part of the way the plot plays out is sort of demonstrating that this uh woman who's from a much uh, more comfortable background is able to kind of open these doors for her but also has this kind of easy sense of possibility that's just like the world is kind of open for you and you can just yeah, yeah. do anything you set your mind to and stuff and she's a very nice person but i, I quite liked the fact that it's clear about that sort of class distinction you know mm-hmm. that uh if you have money you just feel like you can basically you know this is an option for me i can basically yeah, yeah. do that uh, whereas she doesn't have this conception of 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 that and there's a nice moment in it when um, someone suggests her writing her own material. And she says, um, what am I going to write about the bleach ran away with the broom. And it's, it's nice because she feels like her, you know, quotidian poor existence is not good material for, um, uh, for songs, but the country music itself is very personal and very quotidian in its outlook and yeah, has yeah. um its roots in uh, American working class and folk music and, you know, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, So it's actually perfect (laughs) and writing about uh, the bleach would be fine for a country song. Sure. Um, I mean, there's a certain neatness to the fact that she's got this very country music singer like background as well, having been to prison and you know, she drinks a lot and that that kind of thing. Um, I also like the way it uses the device of the unattainable dream. And I think like quite a common uh, narrative device is having a place where you feel like if you get to that place then all your problems will be solved and it's usually this kind of unrealistic thing that that um, protagonists have and uh it's just when it's evoked it's to sort of emphasize the coming tragedy you know in revolutionary road for example that was the first one i thought of where they're always talking about going to paris and you kind of know like these people are not going to get to paris because they're you know their lives are too tragic and they're too trapped in their in their little world and that's both something of a cliche Uh, so it's good that this movie does something a bit different with it although i don't want to uh, spoil it too much but i think where it kind of goes with that is quite nice in that it doesn't portray where she's actually from it's this kind of hole that you just have to get out of but you know you ultimately can't or or you ultimately can uh, as as compared with this kind of like dream world it's got a more positive view um, of of where she actually is without without sort of sugar coating it i guess um and i just felt like the central stakes just felt sufficiently real to me even though the foundation of them was quite familiar so her dilemma about whether to pursue her dream or stay where she is a lot of the time in these movies the reason why you can't pursue your dream is just like other people's expectations or some things where you just want the protagonist to overcome them whereas here i felt like the dilemma was more real and uh, so that made for a more satisfying drama so yeah so i thought it was good and the music is is very well done it's got some original songs in it um, and they landed really well, I thought, a bit similar to like A Star is Born with its original country music. Country music, not a genre that I have any particular affinity for. But, you know, if they keep making these films that I like featuring country singers, I'm going to have to start becoming a country guy myself. I'm going to have cool. to get the, uh, the the cowboy boots and, you know, a Stetson, a Stetson and I get all the stuff and I'm going to become the a country horse? guy. I'll get a horse.
2: <laughs> cool.
1: Yeah. And that's what I'm going to do. When Zach Graff heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? And when John
2: Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to?
1: And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he
2: dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shorchak that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah,
3: yeah, 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 yeah. So I saw a Cloak Orange recently, uh, having not seen it in years, because the BFI doing this Kubrick season, and the sort of centrepiece is like, that got a re-release, so you can see it in loads of different cinemas. I went to the 35mm screening, because I'm a snob. <laughs> and uh, it was much longer than I than I remember it. It goes on a bit, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Well, all the iconic stuff is in the first third, all the sort of slow motion Beethoven doing the ultra violence and singing the rain stuff. Yeah. And it occurred to me afterwards, like his directing style when it comes to dialogue, is very like old fashioned. And maybe it's because he started in the fifties. And I was, try- was trying to think of other directors who kind of um, worked for that long, over such a long period and were still producing work, which was sort of in the culture. But like when- in Kubrick movies, when you go in a room, you stay in there for a long time and it's just like these wide master shots. Yeah. Or like, you know, just simple, like, coverage, one person, one person. I'm like, is he a genius? Like, (laughs) it's like, the way he shoots dialogue is so (laughs) workmanlike. And yet, like, other stuff is so innovative and, like, modern and, like, all the slow motion and the use of music is, like, light years ahead of anybody else. And then when he gets in a room, like... Maybe that's just stately. That's just, like, the beginning of The Shining is, like, so boring. He goes in that room and he sits down he's like, anyway, do you want the job at the hotel? And he's like, yes, I'd like the job at the hotel. (laughs) And then it gets kind of brilliant. Yeah, do you reckon that's part of it? I think that's a Kubrick thing. Like, wasn't that the, a
1: thing in two thousand and one as well? Like the long like, meeting, long meeting. Yeah,
3: I think he uses boredom as like a device. Yeah, They're like sucker you in, like make your brain shut down a bit, and then liven up with some weird mental shit.
1: That's what you do. That's how you play with the audience. You shut their brain down. Yeah. You turn their brain back on again. You shut yeah. it down again. Yeah. <laughs> turn it back on, and then, and people are just bamboozled by constantly having their brain switched on and off
3: um but yeah very good i thoroughly enjoyed it i kind of miss the fact there's no equivalent in the culture anymore there's no like banned movies it's kind of exciting the idea that like, this movie was like banned and you couldn't see it yeah and now it's just at the bfi but like yeah you know there's no the, the internet has ruined all that there's no romance around like this you know oh you could get a copy of club of orange and like yeah, watch yeah that's it. true it's yeah. like this illicit thrill you could get Shame, okay. isn't it? And now I'm just watching in a bloody cinema a bunch of fucking clean shirts. And it's you know? too easy. It's too bloody easy.
1: It's like how you can't do mixtapes anymore. I know. It's what's happened to our world?
3: Uh, you know, you gotta let the past die, you know?
2: Let the past die. Kill it, if you have to. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be.
1: That's true. Alright, friends. That's it for this week on Film Chat. I'm, a, I'm off now to uh, go see a film about um, the indigenous culture of Brazil, which is going to educate me. And I'll be back to talk about at length about that probably. Cool. And uh, we will see you. I'm not sure if we're going to be around next week because I've got a set of more MA deadlines that I'm going to be Blimey. panicking over. But
3: Endgame is coming out.
1: I know I might not be able to see Endgame at the midnight screening on the you know the first day. Oh my be- god! Because, uh, because of my MA work, but maybe I may still well. will. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so I guess when 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 we're back, maybe in a couple of weeks, it's going to be I will be talking about Avengers Endgame and why it's you know the best film ever or something, and uh, maybe we'll have other stuff to review. Cool. All right. See you then.
3: Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
2: The movie business is exactly like professional gambling, except you hire the gambler, usually some crazy kid with long hair who's like, I don't get this guy at all. You give him $100 million, and you say, go to the tables, and come back with $500 million. That is a risk. Now, the studios been going to think of it that way. They say, well, maybe if we, if we, uh, uh, told him that he couldn't bet on red, maybe if we told him, because we did market research and we realized that red wasn't, so they tried to minimize their risk, but once you, and of course you're hiring the kid to be, take risks, to be creative, to do things that have never been done before, never been tested, you have no idea whether they're gonna work or not. That's completely the antithesis of what a big modern corporation is.